So, man, yeah, like I was saying, I was thinking that we could talk a little bit about secessionism. In a lot of people's minds now, with the rise of these kinds of movements in the Southwest, the, the various groups that purport to be pushing for um, a Yoruba nationalist agenda, and then, you know, with the rise of the indigenous peoples of Biafra movement in the East, in Southeastern states led by and in having a conversation about the Nigerian scam or Nigeria being a scam, we thought it would be worth reflecting on these movements because that's how a lot of people think about um, or what a lot of people think about when you offer like a critique of Nigeria as a concept or entity. Um, so, yeah, I thought I, I thought to ask you guys about like what you make of these movements so far. I mean, OEG, you're here. I think Emeka is trying to join, but he might not be. Yeah, I mean, what do you what do you make of of the rise of these movements and what they represent? We have we have to be very conscious of you know the class character of this movement. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, the thing that we have to understand now is that this ethnic chauvinism or ethnic the ethnic flame, the ethnicism and tribalism, the flames are burning very high now. Mm. As he said, Falano said that if you go to some places and you criticize the Boho or or Nambika, you're risking you will be risking your life. Definitely. So like it's a fact that okay, there's there's um Fulani or Aousa dominance in power, you know, like they control the state and all that. But the flip side of this is that look at their own people too. The Fulani yeah. proletariat or Hausa proletariat or northern they suffer the worst form of, you know, um, oppression, human development indices, they are very low or at level. So we must understand the class character of things and not just say point blank or use a same singular brush to paint everything and say, oh, there's Fulani hegemony and all that. Oh, man. The class I mean, character of things. Yeah, there's so many things you've said that make a lot of sense to me. Um, I mean, but the aspect where you're talking about, you know, the question of Northern hegemony, I think it's like, I often find that very weird having like grown up in the North, right? Where I'm like, what North specifically? I mean, if you say Fulani hegemony, well, Fulani people are quite different from Hausa people. I mean, like Usman Danfodio's Jihad conquered seven Hausa states and those people have been resisting for a long time. Um, Not to mention Kanuri people, you know, like Boko Haram is majority Kanuri, right? Those people had an empire for like, you know, they were the longest running empire, I think, in West African history, if I'm not mistaken. They don't really submit very easily to Hausa people or Fulani people. That's the North that people like to paint as homogeneous. And by the way, we've not even talked about all the minority groups in the North. So when people say, the, the, even, okay, when people say the federal government is like Northern dominated, I really want them to get more specific. Not saying that there's not like some empirical reality to that. Like if you look at, Probably if you looked at like um, how the federal bureaucracy is staffed on an ethnic basis, you would probably get like, like you know, depending on what office, some that are like, yeah, definitely lean heavily in terms of northern representation. Pe- people are, are north of the Niger and Benue in general. But like, you know, to, to kind of pin that to one ethnic group per se, I, I mean, I, I just... I'm not as convinced that those people know what the hell they're talking about when they're talking about the North. The, and then, yeah. Okay. The issue there is that this, um, 
harmonization of the North serves mm. a purpose for the ruling class. Definitely. So that, you know, they use it to just cohere that part of the country for their own agenda. It's essentially as if they've dominated yeah. the ruling class now, has dominated the North right, to make it, you know, um, one in one unison and then keep mm. on advancing regardless of the internal strife going on between the minority groups or, you know, or that's having that, yeah, having that singular northern band makes it seem as if, you know, they're in control of everything. So it makes it a tool, essentially, to yeah. foster their domination and also make the minority groups feel as if they are part of the bigger picture. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so it serves that purpose, too. It serves that purpose. Totally. No, I agree that they are, I mean, I think it's true that there are Northern elites who call themselves Northern elite or who call themselves Northern, you know, try to create this notion that the North is something meaningful that like serves the interest of quote Northern people. Um, but I think that is as ridiculous as like, yeah, the secessionist notions that are arising in the Southeast or in the Southwest that, you know, if we succeed on an ethnic basis or on a regional basis, then that's going to somehow provide a much more developmental or much more accountable elite than if we exist in 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 a kind of um, state form where there's a multiplicity of like ethnic groups. Yeah, I mean, I just you know whoever is making that argument, whether they're northern supposedly or eastern or western or whatever, it I find it to be very unconvincing because why would like, you know, why would what in our history or even in our present situation where we have states, like what experience of ours suggests that an ethnic elite is much more preferable to like a pan-ethnic or a pluralist elite? I think um, in our own context, for the people pushing for the urbanization or IPOB, Nature or Biafra, I think their problem usually is the lack of, you know, a deep understanding of how these mm. things. Because we can, if we look back to Ojuku's um, um, ambitions and what he wanted to do, he was still trying to like play a major role in determining the fate of the people in the eastern region, of course, in partnership with imperialists. You know, and then we've taken that to the modern or contemporary Nigeria now, where everyone feels as if once we break it up back to the field out times, that okay, yeah, there might still be expectation, but it will be my own kinsman right. that's exploiting me, and then I might be able to live more with that, other than you know this more complex analysis that I have to do. That even within my own kinsmen, we have traitors, we have people that have played. A crucial role in facilitating my exploitation now, my kinsmen now. Look at the NDDC, for example. Now we have people yeah. that are from the Niger Delta that are active participants and collaborators in the destruction and the exploitation of the people in that region. What have they done to their own people? And now it's yeah. people like that that band together and say they want um, their their own Niger Delta region. So that's the thing. It's like that's why that idea strikes me as so odd is that if we give the people who are exploiting us at the closest level more power then somehow that will make us less exploited i'm like 
Yeah, I don't really see how that logic works. So that's, that's the lack of analysis that's going on. That, you mm-hmm. know, people see the immediate suffering and quickly yeah. try to point to, okay, this is the problem. But they won't sit down to analyze it further. That, look, you have people in the Southwest that have that are now overseeing <laughs> what I'll call an agrarization agenda <laughs> of making everybody thugs, touts, political thugs, beggars. You know, this is a few when we, when we talk about feudalism, this is the feudal manifestation in the Southwest, especially in Lagos, where everyone is now a um, you know a boss, boss-like thug or. Uh, yeah. Does it? And if you go to the southeast, it is cultism, political thuggery. Yeah. Um, so it manifests itself in different ways. The level of exploitation or how the exploitation is being done manifests itself in various ways in different parts of the country. And when we want to receive back into the enclaves of the feudalists now, yeah. that are active perpetrators of this thing, then it shows a flaw in the logic and thinking yeah. of these people that want to relieve that feudal times under the modern state or under a new kind of, um, you know, um, tribal states, I'd say. Yeah. yeah so, I heard someone say the other day that, like, Boko Haram is, in a sense, the most successful successionist movement in, like, recent Nigerian history. Like, leaving aside Biafra, Boko Haram is the, like, is the group that wanted to break away and succeeded in breaking away at least some local governments and held them for like, you know, a couple of years. Now a lot of them are surrendering or whatever. Um, and of course, their approach was to try to um, inspire people on the basis of like extremist interpretations of Islam rather than ethnicity. But it has the same kind of thing where it's like Nigeria is too corrupt. Um, the elite are not serving our interests. So we need to create a pure version of this. Either, you know, in their case, it was like a pure religious version. But, you know, the folks who are calling for, in effect, ethno-states want an ethnically pure state to constrain the boundaries of who can rule within those states and also probably who can be a citizen um, on the basis of tribe. And it's like, yeah, I mean, when these groups emerge, like, the way in which they're, I mean, using Boko Haram again as an example, like how they actually organize themselves is often like much more hierarchical and even brutal in itself than what we have currently, if you can imagine that. Like Boko Haram as a, as a governing entity has been very bad at governing. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it governs with extreme brutality like even, you know, not to go very far into this question, but even like Islamic State was like, you guys are too brutal. So, I mean, of course, that's like a very, very specific example. And, and not to saying that Iboho and uh, IPOB are exactly like this because they they have their own peculiarities. But it, I'm just suggesting that like, just because people are like the same ethnic group and even the same branch of the same religion doesn't really mean that they'll be more accountable. Um, you know, and I guess we've kind of beat around that point a bit in various ways, but it just seems to me like ultimately the versions of the critique of the Nigerian scam that, that rely on succeeding on an ethnic or religious basis only perpetuate the scam. They don't, they don't, they don't exhaust it. They don't like transcend it. I think what should be asked is that, okay, 
let's uh, imagine that we now get these ethno states now. Okay, there's Yoruba nation mm -hmm. now. There's Biafra and all that. What mm -hmm. yes, yeah. what next now? The people because it might be like, okay, we have this nation now. What of the people inside of that nation are mm. you going to ensure that you know they have jobs, proper decent decent living standards, you know, um, eradication of poverty, ignorance, all these kind of mm. things? Are you going to do that? Or once you have your state and then you just continue the exploitation again? Right. Exactly. Especially especially looking at those at the forefront of this agitation. Mm seeing that they are not talking about these core issues because if they if they are cognizant of these core issues then it will quickly make them see that they have an alliance with suffering people in other et ethnic enclaves totally. and it won't be so much about splitting it on the ethnic basis but now creating a fair and just society which will now lead them directly to see that the guys at the top of the Yoruba nation that they want, or the people that are currently at the end of affairs in the Yoruba land or Igbo land, are also major exploiters. And then it knocks on that ethnic argument quickly. But they are not doing that. They just want to. And again, because I was speaking with someone, you know, last week on this ethnic issue. Fine. People should have a say as to how they are coalesced together. Because, okay. Imperialism lodged all of us together in this Nigerian entity and all that. We do have the right to say how we want to exist. You know, for sure. we have the right to say. So this should be balanced, but then there's no room for ethnic chauvinism. There's no room for saying that, okay, one ethnic group is better than the other and all that. But yeah. on the flip side of that, people have the right to say how they want to exist. But under which conditions do you want to exist? And, and then who are the people? Yeah, so who are the people that are speaking for this ethnic group? So these are the questions right. that need to be asked if we want to yeah. just, you know, make sure that what we are doing is all right. Because if we say, okay, yeah, there's this apparent or uh, clear exploitation that's going on, blah, 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 and the whole people in the Yoruba kingdom come together and say, we want to go their way, and this is the kind of society that they want to... That, this is saying through the masses now. Then mm -hmm. one principle, true principle, have to just let them go. So it does nothing for you know the plight of the black race because of course balkanization just makes you weaker. Right. But you know this thing is not as straightforward as it might look because it's getting very very complex. Very yeah, it complex. is, it is, and honestly, I think we need a separate session on secession. We might even call it that. Um, but <laughs> but um, because it, it really is like something we should tease out. And of course, we started like playing with the idea a bit when we talked about proletarian herdsmen. Um, but, um, you know, there's more to say there. But I guess I wanted to like raise it here as an intro to the wider conversation about why Nigeria is a scam, because there's a sense in which we kind of agree with these groups on one premise, which is that the Nigerian state that is currently constituted is not working in the interest of the vast majority of people. Yes, particularly the, the like the people at the bottom tier of the class ladder. Um, but then we definitely disagree on the um, if we dis if we agree on the diagnosis, I guess we definitely disagree on the prescription. So you know what should we do about it? And it shouldn't be that we, you know, it doesn't seem like we should try to split up on, on an ethnic basis because it seems that just perpetuates um, 
you know, the formation of new nationalities that cut across class lines rather than the formation of solidarities across class lines, you know, Sorry for interrupting you. And more importantly, that will still continue to perpetuate more and different types of exploitation, you know, mm-hmm. so-called yeah. ethnic states and all. That's very, very important because then the people, once again, it's going to be the people at the lower ranks, the lower, at least the, the lower class, the proletarians that will feel, you know, cheated out. So, okay, we've broken up into our ethnic distinct. This is exploitational. This is your bad nation. Now let's break into Ijebu. <laughs> nation and yeah. you know that kind of thing yeah yeah so, and so the the elite of all of those groups and micro groups will benefit because they get to have their own you know who was a local government chairman before might become a governor in this situation you know exactly. but the, the exactly. actual workers are now more balkanized more cut off from their like fellow class members in the other group you know which they could have united with before and use their numbers to fight back. So, I mean, and these are, these are the sorts of things we kind of get into on the, on the national and even international level, you know, in the wider conversation that we have in a moment. But I thought it's worth like kind of at least doing an introductory um, exploration of the issue of succession, because obviously it's like, it, it's, it's a hotter topic now, I think, than it's probably been for a long time anyway in Nigeria. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it seemed kind of relevant. Yeah, it's, it's part of the symptoms and signs that the current current arrangement is failing. And then instead of what revolutions or revolutionary thoughts or organization does is to steer society towards you know an upward evolution towards a more just arrangement and all that. Mm. But the absence of the left and revolutionary movements and a viable revolutionary organization is allowing the country or the state to decay back to feudalism now. Like, mm. it's not like we don't have feudalism, you know, but oh, yeah. it's a state feudalist arrangement. Yeah. Now, it's it now wants to decay back and retrogress into that pre independence yeah. feud, like full-blown feudalism. Totally. Yeah, so and then, you know, I think I think part of what annoys me about the whole thing as well is that it wants to retrograde back to an imagined past that is worse than the actual past, because you know, for instance, like in the East, historically, at least as much as we can garner from oral history and such, Eastern groups were radically democratic and federalist, so they didn't have any unified king or whatever right? Like they were sort of acephalously governed. And I know that's not like a utopian system per se, like it had its issues, but to then retrogress back to a situation where they then have one potentate, you know, or one president or whatever, you know, strikes me as a step backwards into an imagined past that is worse than the actual past. You know, and the same can probably be argued in the West where, you know, even though there were like wars for a long stretch of time before colonialism between, say, the Oyok Empire and um, Ife or, you know, smaller groups, um, to now step back into a situation where there's this kind of false unity that is tried to be, you know, that one they try to impose on, on you know, the Yoruba state strikes me as like a historical in itself. So, I'm, you know, at the risk of going even further into the conversation that we should have, you know, in a, in a more expanded 
format, like that's part of what annoys me about the, the, the thing is that, you know, it seems also to be very poorly informed by actual history. This, this, like I said, is a, a lack of analysis on the part of people that are championing this cause. Because it will be very mm-hmm. interesting to see how they try to resolve, if they get the states that they're clamoring for. It will mm-hmm. be very, very interesting to see how they resolve the differences, you know, like you mentioned the Igbo guys now. So are you now going to have a universal easy? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. for your Igbo key, how do you want to resolve that? Though, again, it is still left for them to think about it and Definitely. how they want to think about it. But, you know, like, how do you want to resolve all these things? Because at the bottom of all these things, you're not asking the main question, which humanity rests on top of, which is this exploitative arrangement. Is the AZ going to unilaterally claim that all land belongs to him and then the king's men starts acting like feudal lords and vassals over the over Anambra, over you know, over Imo State, and how will that play out? What are you guys yeah. going to do? You know, so right. which will still leave the masses with the short end of the stick, clamoring for maybe door to door statehood? How? But the funny thing is, like, what what will be the what would be the difference between door to door statehood and what we have now? Like you already provide your own electricity. Your own electricity. <laughs> you already provide your own water and you already provide your own security. So I mean, you know, the only difference is that you don't tax yourself. Somebody else comes uh, and does. Yeah, you know? they tax for so, you. Yeah. And now what you pay for social service. Yeah. So I mean, can we conclude that by and large, the secessionist agitations have also proven to largely be scams as well? Well, according to what we have on ground in Nigeria yeah. and the context in which the uh, people that are pushing for this secession mm. um, forward, it looks very, very much like a scam because we've not heard them flesh out or arrange or tell us the kind of social relations that they are going mm. to establish after you know they get these nations. Rather, what we've gotten is all that points to the continuation of exploitation by fellow kinsmen, like I mm-hmm. said earlier on, Sunday Goa said uh, Tinobu should become the leader, the president of the urban nation. We all know the kind of person Tinobu is. We don't need to go into details as you know and, and all that, but yeah. we all know that we are not getting anything different. If we want to just check or do a scorecard, look at Lagos and tell me how Lagos is doing under the yeah. um, ages or um, this thing of Tinobu. So. We don't want to go too far. This shows the level of thinking of the urban nation guys. And I'm sure Inambikano has not um, itemized any form of new relations, social relations that mm-hmm. he wants to establish. So they're not going deep into the crux of the matter. Therefore, my submission is that these guys really just want to create an enclave where they have their own control since the contradiction of the Nigerian state is is threatening to eat the arrangement, this current arrangement is threatening to eat it up. So it's a fail-safe card for the ethnic guys to just crawl back into where, you know, just in case the Nigerian state crumbles and under its, the weight of its own contradiction. So they can just crumble, crawl back into the ethnic arrangements yeah. and then start their own racket again. You know, it's the yeah. same with doing independence where we didn't establish the kind of social relations we're going to have, you know, and we went in, went for an exploitative one. 
So it, mm. it's taken out more than you know sixty something years now for the whole system to want to rend apart. And the next line of action is to crawl back into ethnic um, boxes and continue the exploitation until maybe another twenty years where we see that it's not working again and they want to receive back into Ijebu uh, <laughs> and then go back yeah. to uh, maybe yeah. you know like it's just yeah, the mess yeah, yeah. Right? yeah the Republic of yes. uh, Dolphin Estate the Republic of Dolphin Estate <laughs> yeah. you know so that's the thing as it, as it stands now in conclusion it's more of a scam than yeah anything logical that they are pushing forward. Like, I feel to see, you know, the likes that these people are. I can't see it. I can't see anything yeah. other than wanting to just break up. This idea of the nation state itself is, is kind of funny because, like, the history of it, and not, you know, there are disagreements about the history of how the nation state emerged. And I mean, in fact, even all of us on the show will have our various perspectives on it. But um, for me, I mean, one critical aspect in the development of the nation state that has set us down a scam, a, tra- a scammed trajectory um, is the fact that I think the solidarity of working people across the world was shattered it, it, through the kind of imperial encounter, um, you know, where you had these merchant companies basically supported by um, like royal European royal families or, or you know, aristocrats going across the world seeking for ways to effectively enrich themselves and their shareholders and calling it a national project. So the people who were slaving in the fields or in the factories were suddenly told that the ambitions of these merchant companies supported by royals and aristocrats were somehow going to redound to their own benefit. Um, and of course, like working people across the world didn't buy that idea immediately, you know. So there are these amazing examples of like, you know, um, cotton weavers in Liverpool or Manchester, like um like opposing the slave trade and opposing slavery in America, right? Because that's where the cotton that they were weaving was coming from. And like feeling strong ties of solidarity to these people across the, the ocean, feeling like they were more, they had more in common with these people than they did with the owners of the factories, right? Because, and that reality reflects the economic lived reality of these people, which is that they did have much more in common with, with, with like you know, people who were wage slaves in another context than they did with their, their their bosses in their immediate context. But that commonality has been blurred over time because of the emergence of these flags, national anthems, and boundaries um, that in effect work very well in the interest of the owners, right? And the interest of these people who are going on ships across the world, you know, and those ships became aircrafts or whatever, right? To To maximize profit, but not for the benefit of those people who are working under them. So for me, I think like some of the kernels, some of the like early seeds of the scam were actually sowed in, in Europe and not here, not even in the colonial world. Um, and it's when, um, you know, the sort of popular movements in those parts of the world lost sight of the global import of the fight they were fighting, like within, uh, within what OEG, you know, has referred to as the 
capitalist core, right? When those when working people there lost like the solid, their solidarity with working people elsewhere in the world who were kind of facing more brutal conditions of of work imposed by the same companies that that were hiring them or paying taxes in their own localities. When they stopped seeing those people as their real um, compatriots and started seeing their bosses as their real compatriots, I think that that's when the seed of the scam was really sowed. Um, so that was that model of like, you know, the person who supposedly looks similar to you or speaks the same language of you, but lives in a completely different economic strata from you. That person is your compatriot rather than the person who isn't within the same economic strata as you. When that model was exported to our own context and we imported it and started learning national anthems and waving flags, that's when I think that the scam was really, the scam really became Nigerian as it were. Um, so yeah, I think I buy a lot of OEG's point about like the imperial origins of the scam um, and how the nation state itself is is kind of poisoned with that. Um, yeah, but there are other aspects I think that tie more directly to the question of Twitter. So I think in our in our era, um, like the way in which the economy now functions through creating a lot of distractions, spectacles, um, like atomizing. Uh, technologies that have us retreat into our own living rooms or bedrooms or, or home offices and not engage with each other on the street or, you know, not actually learn the difficult task of organizing movements together in a democratic manner. Um, I think that contributes to the, 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 the fracturing of solidarity, you know, amongst working people. So, yeah, I agree that like the, 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 the both the way in which Twitter operates and then the way in which like it, it then is banned and we, f- we feel like the ban is, is, is the real assault on our rights. I think that itself is, it has to be like, is, is better understood within the context of the wider scam, which is that the people who are at the bottom are struggling to have, have through the ages been struggling to organize like solidarities that help them throw off the people who are at the top. For me, I think that, at the heart of the conversation around, you know, scam really is independence. Uh, I think that that's what probably ties the conversation about, you know, the ban, you know, um, to my own or our own idea of, of what Nigeria, what it means. I mean, what it means, what what we mean when we say that Nigeria, as it were, was was a scam. And I, I think it's it's about independence and it's about the stories that we tell around independence. So the popular historical narrative will go first. Um, we had founding fathers who came from the three major regions of, of, of major groups in Nigeria. Um, South, Yoruba, Hausa, Igbo. Um, and that's you know, certain leaders within these um, groupings, uh, namely Awolo or Zeke, and uh, it's not Tafa Baliwa, no, no, no. Um, yeah, whatever. But, anyways, this is the story that we all grew up to hear. And really, um, if, if you follow the, the stories or even, you know, the activities of these guys, especially from when um, that history is told, it's usually that okay, they negotiated with 
the whites or the colonialists and somewhere around um, the 50s you know they, 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 there was a constitutional conference which then converted uh, the McPherson constitution in 51 um, but what um, was really not told you know and it's not told categorically is, is that the story that's not told is that there's a struggle for independence that history kind of erases the Nigerian history the way it's told the conventional Nigerian history it doesn't play any emphasis on the activities of certain groups of Nigerians and certain individuals between say 1944 and say 1950 now um, it's a very complex story but I think what what's useful is to say that there were that the Nigerian struggle for independence was led by the bourgeoisie and that within that bourgeoisie class that you had two um, sides you had those who were radical and you had the conservatives now the conservatives were the guys who then compromised who then saw um, thought about um, independence from the point of view of constitutional reviews, right? But there was also a tendency within that bourgeoisie class that thought that they wanted a revolution. And that the steps that they took to get that revolution in terms of how they organized the protests that they led, what they did, is what put us in, what, what even gave, you know, the conservatives the power to even negotiate, you know, with the British for, you know, and that's one side of it. But there's also, and I think this was what Saeed was trying to speak to, even though I caught just the last bit of it, um, the influence of merchant capital, you know, who were also negotiators at that table. And what had happened was at the time when those negotiations were, were over, the British, the colonialists had thought to hand over power to the conservative side of the bourgeoisie class. And it's their own story that's largely been told. The story of the radical elements have never really been told. So it's not, you know, common knowledge that there were people who tried to fuse labor um, into political. So the people who tried to fuse the activities of labor into politics, and that it was it was it was really debated at the time whether labor should be part of politics or whether they should have any real interests in politics. You know, so I, I think essentially what I'm trying to say is um, what we got as independence was perhaps political independence, right? But we never quite got economic independence, you know. So what had happened was that the, the, the guys who then took over power, the conservative, you know, side of the bourgeoisie class that took over power, Namely, the Awolowas, the Nambi Azikiwes, the Tafa Balewas, and all these people, are people who had compromised with the British um, colonialists to ensure that their own business interests were always taken care of. You know, and that's been the story. Now, so whatever scam it is, I mean, for whatever injustice or whatever um, happened, what what else happened after? 1950, for instance, or 1960, if that's where our, our start date, 
has just been building on top of what you know the foundation that or the way that Nigeria was designed. We were designed to get political power, seem make it seem as though okay we were governing ourselves, but protecting the interest of big business, you know, merchant capital that were already entrenched and embedded within the Nigerian economic system. And they were the guys who were fleecing this country for what it was worth. So even when you got into the 70s and you started to talk about indigenization policies, um, what, what had just happened was that the guys who took over power had already gotten, you know, from what, from, from the little that they were getting from, you know, being middlemen, you know, all through the years, they had already acquired some kind of part capital to buy into um, um, parastatals, you know, what, 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 um, yeah, so the whole, so, so big businesses that were already established, so we, we could just buy a share of it, you could get a share of it by virtue of the fact that you had accumulated wealth over time. But essentially what um, the scam really is, is that, I mean, this is my own opinion, Basically, at the point where a certain class of our leaders, you know, the conservative ones, decided that it was fine for them to go into bed with British colonialists so that they could get power, you know. And, and a lot of the things that they compromised on was even regionalism, you know, even uh, so they, 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 they understood that they went all... So they were all going to get power at once. So they decided to get, uh, agreed that they could get power within regions, say the eastern region, the northern region, and then come to the center to then drag for whatever it was. You know, so that really set us back, you know, if you ask me. I don't know. I don't think I'm making the point as clearly as I can, but, you know, that's, I don't, if, if it makes any sense to anybody here, what I'm trying to say, this is, for me, where the scam actually starts. The fact that, Nigeria never really got economic power at independence and was largely dependent on an existing um, capitalist system, you know, one that wasn't in the interest of the working class, even though it was the working class itself who fought for the Nigerian independence, you know. And that's it. It was during this period that people like Paimodu came into prominence. Um, the people who played active roles within that struggle, within that period, that are not as known, say Gugotu and Zeribe, for instance, in Bukaize, these are guys who were in the, the Zikist movement at the time. And that if you really go deep into the history of the Zikist movement, it will be clear that someone like um, Nambia Zikiwe sold out. You know, he threw them, those young lads, under the bus. And he threw them under the bus. I mean, so when you even talk about the ban in 50, it was only after the ban of Ziki's movement in April of 1950 that there was, okay, that, that okay, the, the hounding before then of Zikist, members of Ziki's movement, before its eventual ban, was what paved way for um, the Constitutional Conference of 1950, which then gave birth to the McPherson Constitution. And then when you listen to historians, they tell you that, okay, this is the first time when Nigerians were actually beginning to self-govern. But when you say Nigerians, it was a group of Nigerians who had brokered a deal with the colonialists. And, and the colonialists were um, happy to hand over to this group of people because they knew that business interest of merchant capital, 
you know, would be protected. And it's in, it's so the scam is that whatever, however Nigeria is set up economically as a system, it's always been set up to protect the interests of people within a certain power block, the people who are actually compromised. So it's not Nigerian. The Nigerian nation was not designed to favor or protect the interest of those who actually fought for its own independence, you know, and, and so that's in a nutshell, well, that's not a nutshell, but that's essentially what I'm trying to say. I should say, you know, of course, these are themes that we have reflected on to some extent before and that we will reflect on in much more depth in subsequent episodes. So, for instance, the question of the ZK Stelemeca is raised, you know, like we say, we said before, there's like a, you know, we, we, we are working on and, and we'll put out sometime soon an episode specifically focused on the Zikists and exploring their own influence and uh, and role in the independence struggle. Um, so, I mean, I think this conversation then is much more of a teaser into our wider perspectives about what we mean when we're referring to the scam, um, such that, you know, yeah, I'm sure there's, you know, listeners who might have seen it initially and thought, oh, look, these guys are going to talk about Hush Puppy or Yahoo Yahoo guys. And surely we will. That but I mean, that, one's, <laughs> that one day. But I mean, the, 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 what we're referring to, I think, is is probably something much more foundational um, to the Nigerian experience than that. And in fact, from our pers- I think from my perspective, and I'm sure others will share this view, that stuff is at best only a symptom, you know, of the underlying condition that we're trying to address. Um, so that's that's I think the kind of the, the kinds of idea. Those are the kinds of ideas we have in mind when we're referring to Nigerian scam. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, and I want to add that we should um, also try to see as Emeka um, put um, out there nicely, like the contribution of radical guys and then how they are written out of history such that you barely find their story on any mainstream media or even being taught in schools like this is to show you the power of the dominating class and how they not only control the economy but the cultural institutions the educational institutions and of course we've seen the social media and all these things you know to legitimize and rob us off the intellectual materials to question their domination, you know. And I also have to add that the balance of power in historical processes, it changes for, at times for a short period, at times for a long period. And we should understand that imperialism already with superior firepower, the domination of black people, the domination of continent, whole continents and all that, the place where Africans were negotiating from from a very short period, or for a very short period, was okay from a place of, um, not from a place of power, but for a very short period of time, it changed into when the nationalist sentiments all across the countries that colonialism was trampling upon people, when the 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 um, side effects or the contradictions of the imperialism imperialist class got to a head, and then the nationalist fever was high and blowing very very high. They had no choice you know, but or than to just say, okay, yeah, we're going to give you guys this uh, independence in quotes. But now we have to go and go into the nature of even that political power that we got. 
because now if we got a political power that is not for the people then essentially i don't even even think in the context of our nationhood that's a political power that we should um, categorize as something for us which even further cements this camp like even that political power in quote that we got is in the context of imperial domination so you know like and this ties into the discussion i was having with um with um Said in the beginning that look if you're able to mobilize with the masses and let them know that this is what we are up against then it's easier to resist such that when you face the backlash or the strangulation of imperialism you're able to unite with the people and then come up with more revolutionary policies to resist and get that genuine independence as we've seen with some countries that did uh, their national liberation struggles, you know, maybe through armed struggle or that understood the class function and then not necessarily just saying we have independence, but to uproot that class structure that was going to perpetuate or still keep them maldeveloped and underdeveloped, you know. And you, we see countries like maybe Guinea-Bissau uh, with Amerika Cabral or even them Thomas Sankara that tried to rearrange the military structure to favor the people and all that. You know, so even what I, I what I'm just trying to say to add to Mika's point is that even that political power that we got is is come to like you know, so that's why the thing is it becomes the active component or the active ingredient in further cementing the economic policies that does uh, that that doesn't put the uh, or that puts the masses in a place where. You know, we're always at a disadvantage and all that. You know, so no, I just want to add a little bit of um, point to that. Yeah, one. I mean, you but know, I okay. So so far, our narrative has just what we're saying on the you know, when we're yeah. explaining the scam, we focus primarily on um, the role of imperialism and also on the kind of international context out of which independence emerged. We've also focused on the historical dimension in terms of like the nature of the independence movement and how it ended up favoring conservative elements rather than some of the radical or workers um, elements that were also pushing for independence. But I think like beyond that historical moment, it, I'd be interested in hearing how people reflect on the scam since independence, you know, in the republics that have followed since then. Um, and Emeka was getting at this a bit with his reflection with your reflection on uh, on indigenization but i'm also interested in democratization right um because in the 90s we supposedly you're, you're breaking up side you're breaking up oh shit that's too bad yeah you're breaking up you, you can try to maybe pause for a while and you know or try to move around to see if you can get better network okay I think Emeka was hearing me and wanted to start responding. So yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, part of one way to think about it is just even listening to conversations that people are having. So I think it was yesterday or two days ago. I woke up and I saw that OAG had responded to some tweet. And that's how he came on my own radar. And then this guy was making <laughs> claims that <laughs> um, all the governments that we've had, was it all the governments have been socialists, you know, or whatever. Oh, yeah. Marx. I mean, would you remind me? I, yeah, I yeah, I think, I think uh, the tweet was something about uh, the APC being a socialist or communist uh, government or something. 
you know, that kind of thing. And then he was kind of saying, yes, that there are policies, you know, uh, it's bad for the country. Nigeria is a socialist country, essentially, you know, uh, with specific uh, attention to Buhari. And, uh, you know, that, that's like a nutshell of what he's, you know, what he said. Yeah. That, <laughs> no, um, no, no, but, you know, but, 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 but you see the so thing. So the guy is now in the labor camp making big rocks, small rocks. And uh, <laughs> and reading Mao in the evening. Nah, nah, nah. You, but, you, you know, and 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 you know, <laughs> but I went back to that that tweet a couple of hours later, maybe twenty four hours later, and I and I saw that it, it, it had gained some kind of traction, and with certain people saying, yeah, that that's the problem that we don't even understand that Nigeria is um, that, that these guys are <laughs> socialists, and and I'm like, wait, hold on. You know, and, and this for me is the effect of, of, of the scam, you know, and, and it's, mm. it, it, it's what shows me or what tells me that, you know, if, you know, the fraud, the fraud, as it were, is, is a successful one where people can't even, don't even understand the basic rudiments of, of the economy or of, of their own country or how it's, it's or how it is that it is structured. Oh, man. You know, yeah, um, the connection is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but this isn't this itself isn't too far removed from the scam question, is it? The shitty network. So I think, I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, okay. So I'm saying. I think it makes us should take the point again. Yeah. So I'm saying that just the other day I was on Twitter and and I saw that oh some guy make some claim about you know the way the Nigerian societies organized basically that is, is organized around you know socialist worldviews and that even buhari is a socialist and you know and and first thing yeah. is first that i don't get where that's coming from but i also understand that perhaps it's 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 a marker to show that you know the scam as it was orchestrated you know during independence is one that has become very successful where people tend to see um um, um, welfareism, you know, as socialism to, to an extent, you know, where people get hands are yeah. handouts and, and all of that. You know, I, I don't know that you go to England tomorrow and you don't see that, you know, that's that there are elements of it being a welfareist state. And when you look at the NHS, yeah. you know, or the fact that people who are unemployed actually have other means to get something from the state. But I don't know that anybody who well, in their right... But they make it look... Yeah? I mean, look, okay, I, I think that point is very interesting. And, and I've been reflecting on that a little bit because although I'm off Twitter, people keep sending me screenshots of various people calling Buhari socialist because people know that it really annoys me. And it, like, you know, it's a really ridiculous idea. But I think... Um, the or, tracing the origin of that back to independence is like an interesting project, but I think there, there might be even more contemporary sources of that kind of perspective. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I think the English, the example of the UK might be slightly less analogous from this standpoint because they do have like a bit of a historical um, welfare state. But I think the example of the US maybe is a little... Is a, is a bit of a better analogy to understand how p people in Nigeria might think about Buhari as a socialist because he said that he wants to take people out of poverty. 
insofar as like Americans also have this kind of knee-jerk uh, American conservatives anyway. I think, Saeed, you're breaking. You have to take this point. Oh, man. I was just about to land. Um, no, but I was, you know, responding. Go near your window. Ah, uh, so okay. Let's try. Is this any better? Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, sorry to interrupt, well, Mecca. Yeah. I was just, I mean, vibing with a lot of what you were saying. Um, and I also saw a lot of those tweets. And every time there's a new conversation on Twitter about Buhari being a socialist, despite my being off Twitter, somehow I get brought into it because people send me these WhatsApps, uh, screenshots of, of, of that conversation. Um, and I, I agree with you that, you know, this is one of the outcomes. This, this is probably one of the long-term outcomes of the kind of education we have about independence. But I think it's also an outcome of the kind of education that people get about the economy. And that education they probably get from, like, cons- consuming a lot of American, like, nonsense or, like, just consuming a lot of conservative thinking that if a government intervenes like in any sector of the economy or social life, then that's socialist, which is very ridiculous because, I mean, we've just seen heavily interventionist conservative parties emerge in a lot of the world. Trump being an example, like a lot of what Buhari is doing here in terms of economic um, nationalism, in terms of like tariffs um, on, on specific goods, and even in terms of like certain conceptions of welfare, are like being pioneered and put in place by conservative governments across the, across the world. You know, to Trump also did Trump box. You know, he gave people like cash transfers at the start of the COVID pandemic. The Conservative Party in the UK is also doing all this interventionist shit. So I think it's a miseducation that goes back to independence, but I think it's also just a miseducation that that like reflects their very yeah. poor understanding of how contemporary politics is operating. You're breaking it. You're breaking um side. Okay, that's fine because I was done anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, I get, I get your, I get your points. I, I get your points, Said. You know, but I think that I also, I also think that um, it's not just how do you say it. It's not. It's. I mean, if 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 the education or or the narration of history, you know, the history of the independence struggle in Nigeria was told properly, or it's um, one that doesn't exclude, you know. The struggle from the point of view of, of the Nigerian left, now as it were, um, people would probably better understand, you know, the, the global system, the global economic system, you know, way better than than they do now. And then it, it will form, it will become some kind of filter so that when you as, absorb what it is that you absorb from the West, say whether America or Great Britain, you you would have some kind of filter, you know, to help you process it. You know, otherwise, um, I, I really, I don't, I don't, you know, maybe I haven't thought about it properly, but I don't know why anyone would think that we've had, I mean, that nothing in history supports it, really. I mean, there were parties in the 1970s in Nigeria, strictly socialist parties, which were not registered for elections, understand? So, um the history of Nigeria has been such that the Nigerian state, you know, the guys who took over power from the colonialists have done 
everything in their power to see to it that we do not even have a socialist party emerge for even just for even being elected, not to talk of winning an election or and and all whatnot. So it, it, I mean, it, it sounds very funny to me when I hear somebody say that we've had um, we've had that we, that the, the socialist ideologies or policies are, are what is responsible or is what is responsible for you know the state of, of the nation today is it's absurd really i mean if i'm if i quote chimamanda it's obscene <laughs> that anyone would, would think that you know but also a function of the fact that perhaps the le- left you know hasn't done its own job in telling its own own stories you know and, and maybe it's only just beginning to do that now you know um but we're not even anywhere close to where we need to be, you know, in terms of putting out, you know, an alternate history of, of the Nigerian uh, independence struggle. One that actually does glorify um, the activities and the efforts of those who actually, I mean, it, the whole of, of the Zikis movement, history of the Zikis, is littered with people who were arrested for, what, 12 years, um, three years, for months. You know, because of the roles that they played. You know, I mean, it's it's probably going to it's, it will be news to people that you know that a, that an attempt was made on the life of a colonial secretary in this country. You know, and that these these were these, these that it was strategic in the sense that they wanted to cause an uprising. You know, it, people don't get that history, but that's even not part of what we, we what we. Um, Discuss, or we're looking to discuss when we talk about the economics of it. But look at a com- company like UAC. What do, what do people think that the UAC represents in Nigeria? What do they think that the oil companies have come to represent in Nigeria? And that when policies are made by successive governments, you know, um, an Abacha, for instance, killed Ken Sarawiwa because he was agitated for what? Um, environmental issues in the Niger Delta, you know. And I mean, the issues, you might not like the messenger, but the issues that this guy was, you know, advocating for were issues that were central to the lives and livelihoods of people who inhabited a certain part of the Niger Delta. And what, what, what was, what fit did he meet? He was killed because the government of the day thought, okay, oil revenues first before the people, you know. So when somebody comes to me and says, um, somebody is, is, it, the question you need to ask yourself is what interest do policies that they push, whose interest do they represent? All of Buhari's policies, or most of Buhari's policies today, whose whose interest you know does 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 it represent? Is it the interest of the masses? You know, have we had land reforms in that sense, where you put you, you what, so what where, when people where do they pluck these things out of? That's what, and I think. You know, if with without proper grounding, without proper understanding of where we're coming from, people then begin to make all sorts of naive, silly statements. You know, as to the fact that we, we have been led um, that the, the reason why we're in this mess is because we have had socialist ideas. Yeah, but look, I I, I agree with a lot of that. I just want to suggest that maybe not all of it is good faith. As in, maybe not all of it is ignorance. Maybe some of it is actually politics, as in defining your adversary in a way that you think is um, 
in a way that you think is easy makes it easier for you to attack them, right? So like in a in a hyper conservative context such as ours, even center right policies will be framed as socialist because you know you just know that uh, if something is socialist, then it's so off the rails that it's not even worth considering. You know? So maybe maybe I agree with you that like, you know, there is a huge gap in knowledge, but I think even if some of these people knew about the PRP and like socialist parties we've actually had, even if they knew about the existing socialist movements today in Nigeria who fundamentally oppose Buhari and continue to denounce him, etc., they would still argue that he's socialist because for them, they are aware that conservatives have a lot of the material and political power so they can define their opponents however they which, you know, inter-conservative squabbles can be framed as though they are ideological battles between the left and the right. You know, and that was epitomized in this, in the 2019 elections, right, where Atiku came out calling, saying that he's the right winger and these guys are the left, when it's like, no, you guys are barely distinguishable from, from a really, like a historically informed left-right perspective. So I guess I'm just, the, the main point I'm making there, or the main question I'm asking is like, how do you distinguish the aspects that are genuine ignorance from the aspects that are like bad faith conservatism? I hear you, and I, and I think that I mean you've made your I mean you have you you're pushing a very solid argument or position, but but I think that at the end of the day, the way I, I think about it is if more people were informed, then it would become increasingly difficult for um, bad faith actors to make very silly statements, you know. But what you find now, mm. then, um, they make these statements and then there's a mass of people behind them, you know, nudging them on because basically it's, it's basically because of the gap in knowledge. It's ignorance, if you ask me. Because if more people knew, you know, had more access to, you know, this... This history of, of, of Nigerian struggle that has been excluded, has been deliberately erased from popular narrative, it will become increasingly difficult for people like, you know, um, like bad faith actors to be making sentiments that they're making pushing pushing opinions that are neither here. In fact, that nothing supports historically, you know. But mm. because people don't have access to that knowledge, what you find is that it's popular narrative that then allows them think that they're making any any valid points, you know, that they're making any yeah. sense in, in any real context. Because what what I hear is a whole lot of rubbish. But it's also possible, and, and this is something that I'm willing to concede, that a lot of us will just go frontally and attack, you know, without taking time to actually get into debates. You know, um, I personally don't really have that time anymore. You know, but I'll just ask questions so that I know Okay, where where perhaps this problem is is coming from, but I think we need to, and 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 this is why for me it's important that the left, you know, actually sits up and then is able to rise up to the occasion because the work, the amount of work that needs to be done to educate people who are ignorant, um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about even the working class now. I'm just even talking about you know within bourgeois classes where you know these conversations are ongoing. Is that for those who aren't well formed or who aren't stuck in any ways in, in, in their own ways as it were, um, 
there's a chance that if we begin to push these narratives out to spaces like the universities where people are just getting their education, we might be able to salvage something. Because um, when you see that the way um, the dominant ideology in this country is the capitalist one, this is just one example of it. You know, because people can't even think yeah. beyond, you know, can't see beyond their noses. It's, it's, it's I mean, it's painful, but what can one do? I mean, sometimes you just have to laugh it off. But I, I think that um, if we had more people with access to this information, then it would become very difficult for people or bad faith actors to actually have a few day talking nonsense. That's what I, honestly what I think about. It. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just to add to the points that you guys have beautifully made, I'm going to quote Mr. Komolafe on this one, Mr. Gwenda Komolafe, P1 secretary. He said, the greatest victory or triumph of the neoliberal order is the destruction of emancipatory education. Mm. Now, we have to understand that even what we call education is part of the superstructure that springs from, you, you know, because we have a base and then a superstructure. If you have a base which is the economics, the social relations of production and all that. The base influences and shapes the superstructure, which education is part of, which culture is part of, which religion is part of, which law is part of, which the nature of the state is part of, and all that. So we expect that in a neoliberal society, in a capitalist society, we expect that the education should be anti-socialist, that it should be anti-revolutionary, that it should be anti-people, that it should keep distracting the people from the, you know, from questioning that base itself, that antagonistic relations of society. So I'd say that even on the university campuses, they are not neutral terrains anymore. So mm -hmm. they are not neutral terrains anymore. If you come with revolutionary ideology or you're trying to teach socialist thing and all that, you meet heavy resistance from the higher ups, yeah. it, this, this is what we are facing now. We must now see that everything that makes up our, makes up our society it has taken or has now uh, been infected by the, the dominant social order such that the, those, those components of the superstructure now act as defenders of the capitalist system. You know, it now acts as things that stabilize the capitalist system. So the education we go to school to get, how we are being socialized in our societies and how we see ourselves is essentially in terms of, you know, being pro-capitalist, defending it, even if it's, um, you know, um, unconsciously. You know, so we have to be conscious that oh, most of these people, they are never, almost never going to find anything emancipatory or revolutionary in um, in you know, the normal school settings or normal media settings or just books that you pick up from library and all that, you now have to be conscious. You know, like then where um, Emeka said, the function of the left now. Let's even look at the nature of the left that we have and what we call the left in Nigeria. Is it really existing? Has it gone to sleep or has it totally been beaten into subservience by the dominating power of these elites? Like, let's look at the labor unions. How do they get their leaders you know this kind of this type of thing like is it now essentially a toothless bulldog that just backs once in a while and then crawls back into its cage to just kind of make it seem as if they have the appearance of labor whereas it's 
it's not fulfilling its historical yeah. duty. You understand what I'm saying? So we should just members can keep paying dues. <laughs> so we should understand that we should understand that institutions serve a societal function, you know, and we shouldn't expect that the institutions that we have in our society are going to contribute as as they are. No, let me let me just add something to that, which is that I mean I, I we all agree that political education is important, you know, and I think the quote that OEG started with, you know, emphasizes nothing more than that. But I think it's also important to like try to tease out the next step is like, okay, who will be the target and what kind of venues are most appropriate for that? Um, and I'm not convinced that it's, you know, like OEG is saying, I, I think if you go to a lot of campuses and try to preach, you know, <laughs> trying to engage people on the subject of Marxism or whatever, it's not only the higher ups that you even have issues with. I tell you, some of those guys you're talking to will want to slap you or tell you to get the hell out of there, right? Because like the mentality now is like you've got a hustle to blow, you know, and that's the point. Um, so you know these these, and that is every man for himself, right? Um, and like I don't think that comes from nowhere. I think that. You know, yeah, like we're saying, it's it's like kind of what people have been taught um, in the in the within the context of of the Nigerian capitalist system. But I think it's also the global zeitgeist, um, and I think like how it, how it manifests here is particularly pernicious. Where you will see people, you know, as I was, you know, as we've reflected on briefly in other episodes, you will see that there's like a huge Trump fan base in Nigeria. Or you'll see that, like, you know, Nigerians are, like, hugely in favor of massive corporations and have no issues with, like, global monopoly capital or any of that stuff, you know. So, like, a lot of those young people have picked their side. It's not it's not that they're ignorant. It's that they've, like, you know, sure, maybe they don't know a huge amount about the, the history of the left or the world of the left, but, mm. like, learning about it... I mean, they will learn about it through their existing frame of reference. And, you know, it will be one that makes that knowledge easy to dismiss. So, I, you know, that's not to mm-hmm. say that there's no alternatives left for, for folks who want to do political education. I just don't think that the best way to go about it is through trying to target the kind of, like, upper middle class Twitter handle, like, you know, havers. Um, and it might not necessarily even be through the tertiary education system, which in the 70s and 80s was one of the key ways in which the left was trying to grow in Nigeria. And I think that to some extent, the results of that period suggest that maybe that strategy had had certain limitations. No, no, I, 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 don't, I don't think, oh shit. You just spilled your stout on your laptop. Uh, I wish that's what it was. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> <laughs> you would have at least been able to drink the remainder. Uh, no, this whole this whole thing would have been off. But anyways, um, don't make me bleed. I'm not joking. Now. <laughs> I, I I I don't quite agree with you on that bit. Um, okay. I think that if people hadn't tried to um, inject radical ideas into the university system in Nigeria in, in say maybe from the sixties actually from mid sixties actually um, 
perhaps it's it it reached its heights in the seventies and then maybe started to wane in the eighties. But you know, it had at least a decade and more, you know, under its belt of real intellectual work that went into um, injecting radical ideas within campuses. What we then began to see was, you know, um, a proliferation of radical student unions, radical wings, uh, radical students within um, different traditions. And, and when you look at that history, you'll find that um, each tradition was was unique. So you had the UI axis, you had the IFE axis, you had um, the Amadubili one, you know, yeah. and then you had those in Calabar and other small, 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 small pockets. In fact, part of that is... Yeah, and I think we'll come back to, to this question of the student movement and, and, and the left in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s, I mean, particularly in the 70s, because I think it's a really interesting focus. Yeah. So, but, yeah. Yes, yeah, so and, and, and yeah. Yeah, so there was no one time when they had massive numbers, okay? But they had numbers enough to make, you know, the, 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 the effect that they had was such that it made, you know, a significant number, even though small, of students understand that they had to link their own advocacy to advocacy of workers in the country you know, the state of the working class, you know, and, and all of that. Because at the end of the day, once they left school, they were also going to get into the job markets. So they, that building of social consciousness was there. It wasn't, it didn't reach the heights where maybe it would have caused big problems. But don't forget that sometime in the late 70s, I think it was um, around 78, maybe 79, um, that I think it was Obasanjo who said that what we had on campus were teachers who were they're being paid that they were paying teachers to teach that teachers were teaching they were paying teachers to teach what something I can't remember that phrase now what they didn't ask you to teach you what they didn't ask you yeah what they didn't ask you to teach now I mean that just goes to show that I mean whatever else anybody thinks there was there was something something had begun to brew on campuses across Nigeria, you know. And then Obasanjo, it was also who fought tooth and nail to see that he went. Yeah, but America, like, I, I, I think, okay, I think we should we should get into this debate. At, no, I, I think this is a really interesting debate to have. And I, I suspect, actually, our views diverge quite a bit when it comes to the question of campus leftists um, or campus communists, as some, as some people like to disparagingly, disparagingly refer to them. Um and like I, I'm not un- entirely unsympathetic to what you're saying that like um, the campuses have been a kind of nucleus for certain kinds of struggle in Nigerian history, but I just think that, and again, I think we'll have this debate more more fully in a separate episode. But I just think that to tie back to what OEG was saying at the very beginning, that there's really no substitute for like mass social mobilization if you're going to try to carry out a socialist project in the post-colonial world or even in the even in the core. And I think that the kind of like focus on building this intellectual wing of radicals sometimes runs at cross purposes with the wider focus of trying to build a mass movement. Because those those two things are not necessarily I mean, you know, it seems like they might go hand in hand, but within our history they haven't necessarily gone hand in hand. 
So you will find that there's people who can speak with, in all this like leftist jargon on campuses. But then the moment you leave the gates of the campus, everybody is still toiling in their like, like oppressive social conditions. And I've never heard of any of this stuff. Right. So there's an extent to which it becomes a kind of reified esoteric elite culture, you know, associated with men with graying afros and the wearing of African outfits. And, you know, <laughs> but it never, exactly, you know, but it never can, it never can actually connect to the day to day struggles of ordinary people. And I know there were moments when student activists intervened forcefully into national political questions, like students were part of structural adjustment protests or anti, anti structural adjustment protests. Students were part of anti apartheid protests. And even to today, the National Association of Nigerian Students continues to protest whenever there's like xenophobia in South Africa or that kind of thing. But I think that you know, if we focus our attention on campuses or on Twitter or whatever, we risk keeping this, like, consciousness um, at the very least, at the very b- most, at some fringes of the middle, upper middle class and the middle class. So it remains an elite, like, like esoteric elite club rather than a mass movement, which is the, which is the end goal. Um, but again, I, you know, this is a wider conversation I think we can flesh out um, with more examples yeah, and such. Yeah, and, and I still, by the, way, so. uh, by the way, I yeah. still don't agree with you, Said, but just to um, chip this in before. <laughs> yeah. we, we, I didn't think you would. Yeah, yeah, we will. But let me just get this out of the way. I know you love so that. that. Yes, I yeah, that's Okay, okay. No, maybe America lands and then we can pivot to Yeah, no, I, I need to get this out. I need to get this out of the way. It won't kill anybody. So I, I, I understand you when you say that <laughs> mass organization is the end point. Really, but then there are strategies to get to, to that point. And what I mean, um, injecting radical ideas into campuses just serves a purpose. It's not the end, at the very least, it's maybe just the beginning. And I think that even from the 60s, 70s, it was not seen as the end result. That things didn't come to a head in terms of um, the fact that it didn't lead to revolution is not enough reason to discard the foundational idea behind it in the first place. I mean, that's all I'm going to say. I mean, and then when we find time to discuss this, I probably have more to say. But yes, that's... that's. Maybe. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that conversation. And I think it would be interesting to reflect a bit on the Ethiopian revolution in that conversation, which was one that was led very largely by student radicals who came out of the campus and tried to do mass movement. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk... I, I'm sure we'll, we'll have more to say about that at a later date. Um, so should we like kind of wrap up with, with, with final thoughts about the scam? I I think that um, it will be interesting. I mean, in closing, this, uh, this is what I, an observation. I think it will be interesting to explore, you know, similarities or the dissimilarities of say the Zikist movement, which for me is, um, was really essentially a movement, you know, and the NSAS moment, if 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 I'm allowed to say that, because I I don't know if NSAS was a movement, and and, and I know that we've had that conversation before, and, and I maybe I've gone to both polls, you know, saying okay, it's a movement, maybe it's not a movement, but anyways, I think that it's it's important to it, that would be very um, useful to try and see what you know what whether there. Um, similarities between both i mean I, I, essentially these these are things that were powered by youths you know and the guys who were zikists 
were very young guys, maybe even in their late teenage years, maybe their early 20s at the time when, you know, they had these things going for them. Um, what they did even with the Ivavali uh, massacre, you know, was astonishing, you know. But of course, they, they also have two different trajectories in terms of how it, how they were bettered and how even um, the, the organization. I mean, and it's the organization that I find very interesting too. Um, I think it was Tenna who was speaking early on in, in, in this, during the recording, and I, and I think I, I made a mental note of it, that um, because the Zikis had leaders, I mean, they had the general secretary, they had the president, you know, at any time they ran into problems with the state, they always ended up in prison, you know. I mean, all of them, from Raji Abdallah to, you know. And then I think what I was amused by was the fact that when I look at the NSAS, it was, there were no leaders to arrest, so they're just picking random guys, you know, off the streets. And, and those were the guys who spent, you know, some time in prison. And even in the news today, you, you didn't hear that how many months, maybe six months after, or even seven, eight months after the protest, there are people who are just getting released from, you know, um, prison cells, you know, and, and th that the reason you can find links between why they were there in the first place and, you know, the end of the yeah, that's, that's just what I thought to say. Um, just looking at what I actually had written on Zeke's turn, but I think we can wrap up. I mean, in there somewhere, be a full episode, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah. Peace. Peace, y'all. Later.